Welcome to Museum Archipelago. I'm Ian Elsner. Museum Archipelago is your audio guide through the landscape of museums. Each episode is never longer than 15 minutes. So let's get started. Okay, I'm uh, Cheryl York. I'm the executive director of the National Center on Accessibility. So we work with uh, primarily parks and recreation, cultural arts and museums, uh, helping to provide access to people with disabilities in those venues. We're going to talk about the 2012 renovation of the White House Visitor Center, which Dr. York helped develop along with exhibit designers and architects. First, though, some clarification on terms. In the U.S., there's something called accessibility standards. These are primarily architectural standards derived through negotiation and public comment. Dr. York would say that these are compromise standards. Some people will not be able to access a building that is up to accessibility standards, and there will be some people whose abilities far surpass those standards. Universal design usually refers to the practice of taking into account the needs of all users, including both ends and the middle of any ability distribution. Universal design uh, had its root in the architecture world where it was looking at uh, products uh, and environments that were designed to accommodate a greater, the greatest range of individuals uh, and abilities without having to provide um, special assistive technologies. So universal design really builds on accessible accessibility standards, but it goes beyond those accessibility standards. In 2012, the White House Visitor Center underwent a complete renovation. This was completed in 2014. The Visitor Center serves several roles. For some visitors who are about to go on a timed, ticketed tour of the White House, the Visitor Center is a complimentary and orienting experience. For those who don't have the opportunity to go on a tour, the Visitor Center provides a standalone educational experience. At the very beginning of the renovated center, there's a raised line floor plan of the exhibit space with Braille labels positioned to serve as a starting point to the exhibition. It's something that we often recommend uh, to provide orientation to anybody within a space, but uh, especially for people who may be blind, because just being in a space doesn't give you a sense of where you are or where you want to go within that space. So uh, we developed a raised line floor map of the uh, exhibition area, and it is located um, when you first come into the visitor center. Uh, there's a whole history of Baldridge Hall. That's where the visitor center is located. Um, and it provides then uh, anybody an orientation, and it is oriented in the direction that you are standing. So if you look to the left, that's where the exhibits are. If you look behind you, that's where the bookstore is. So all of that gets oriented um, in real space. But the idea is to give people a, a general idea of where to go um, and what uh, is in the spaces. So I want to know where the restrooms are. I want to know where the bookstore is. I want to know generally where the exhibits are. I want to know that the theater is all the way to the other end of that space. So it it, uh, it is not a complicated map, um, 
but it just gives you that that general sense of what's in that space. Other parts of the visitor center employ touchscreens for things like providing a 360-degree view of interior rooms of the White House. Well, I think one of the things that we've discovered, um, because touchscreens do seem to be pretty popular as a way to deliver information, uh, is to understand that there are people of varying abilities that need to access the information that a computer program is trying to convey. A touchscreen is just one way of accessing that information. So knowing ahead of time that you need to have really multiple ways of navigation uh, can help someone in determining the hierarchy of content, for example, as well as different ways in which people are going to be able to input. Not everybody can use the touchscreen. For somebody who's blind, just using a touchscreen without any kind of audio or tactile uh, output uh, or direction is not going to uh, be possible. So either having a... um, a touchpad or a keep uh, keyboard in which uh, someone who's blind can navigate uh, and getting some audio uh, feedback uh, for what it is that they're selecting um, for there are some people with physical disabilities who can't can't reach a touchscreen or uh, don't have the ability uh, fine motor ability they may use all alternative ways of um, interfacing with computers like using uh, hand sticks or mouth sticks or head wands or something like that. So you have those, those uh, external kinds of keypads or keyboards uh, can be used by someone like that. Uh, so knowing that there are a variety of ways that people need to access the information uh, and understanding how you're going to present that information so it doesn't become so complicated for somebody who has to use a different input method than a touchscreen. I'm curious about some affordances that touchscreens offer that can make them better than traditional methods of displaying information. I'm thinking particularly of the convention of pinch-to-zoom for fields of text. Making the text bigger is something that everyone can use, and I wonder if it will become just as natural and ubiquitous as getting closer to a printed graphic. Yeah, well, again, um, you may have somebody with low vision or who wants to really zoom in and see something closer who doesn't have that ability. You can have that ability by providing some other options, either, again, with an external keyboard or with uh, something that can be accessed on the screen. Maybe I, you know, have something in the corner that uh, I can touch that a couple of times and it will increase or decrease. Um, but again, you, you look at the ones who can't actually touch the screen, um, and so how are they going to be able to get that benefit? You, you want to have monitors um, when you're delivering any kind of inter- interpretation or program in a museum uh, that is doesn't have so much text that you everybody finds the need to have to increase the the um, the font size. Uh, so you know, keeping things uh, simple and easy to to navigate uh, is again 
uh, part of that, being able to interface with a, a much broader range of people. Universal design emphasizes understanding user diversity and making design decisions that include as many people as possible. While Dr. York did not encounter resistance to including additional elements or redesigning elements to make the exhibition inclusive to a greater range of visitors, it did require more time and cost, which leads her to this main takeaway. Uh, Too often, um, accessibility, much less universal design, uh, tends to be an afterthought instead of a forethought. Uh, You need to really be putting that into your planning and into the budget, uh, we encounter way too many times where we're brought in to work with uh, some museum exhibit design and they've already gone through, you know, their their many iterations of plans and then if somebody goes, oh, but now we need to make it accessible. Well, that creates um, a lot of disconnect. It it makes it look like, again, it wasn't part of the original design and it becomes much more difficult and expensive to do. You yeah. end up losing losing some things in order to accommodate accessibility, whereas if you had planned a universal design approach, uh, all of that would, would uh, interface uh, very nicely and, and wouldn't look like you retrofitted a brand new exhibit. Dr. Cheryl York is Executive Director of the National Center on Accessibility at Indiana University. This podcast is based on a case study she wrote for the fall 2015 issue of The Exhibitionist. This has been Museum Archipelago. We hope you enjoyed your visit. Notes on this episode can be found at museumarchipelago.com. Next time, bring a friend.